Are you ready to bring your real estate game to the next level? My name is James Prendamano. I'm the CEO and founder of Pre-Real. And over the past 25 years, I've closed over a billion dollars in transactional real estate. Each week, I'm meeting with outstanding investors, high-performing individuals, and visionaries operating in the real estate space. These are the people that are actually out there in the real estate game right now getting it done. This podcast aims at bringing anyone's game to the next level. This is the Pre-Real Podcast. Welcome, everybody, to the show. We're joined today by David Perret. We have uh, a real treat. David has a, a remarkable story. He's the CEO from Military to Millionaire. Uh, he's the co-founder of the Real Estate War Room Mastermind. He is uh, clearly a, a heck of a resourceful guy. He's got an amazing story, and, and I think some real value we'll be able to deliver to the audience today. David, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me on, brother. I appreciate it. Uh, absolutely. So, um, as we always seem to do, we like to, to get a sense of, of background. So uh, you, you joined the Marine Corps in, I think it was August of 2008. Um, military, was that something that was in the family? How did you end up following that path? Yeah. No, I don't think it, it, it wasn't in the family at all. It was definitely just more of a, uh, I lived in Arkansas and I wanted to get out of Arkansas. I didn't really know what I wanted to go to school for. I didn't really have money to go to school. I didn't like school in high school, so I didn't really want to do that anyway. Uh, so then, you know, I, I talked to a recruiter while I was in and I thought, you know, I'd always kind of wanted to do something like firefighter, police officer, whatever. Um, recruiters came to my school. I ended up talking to them all and thought, oh, the Marine Corps sounds like a good fit. Let's travel the world. And uh, that's all she wrote. I did it. I was going to do it for four years and then go to school. I done with four years. I realized I still don't know what I want to study. I still don't like school and I like the Marine Corps. So I'm gonna keep doing this for a little while. So you're, uh, this was a pathway for you to, to, to travel a bit and, and see if you can find your path as you were doing this. Uh, you became a command financial specialist. What, what does that mean? So that's just like an additional bill that you can get on. You can get once you hit a certain rank and basically uh, it teaches you, it's like a week-long course that the military does to teach you all about our benefits and uh, budgets and the, our thrift savings plan, like 401k and the VA loan and just overall basic stuff. And what happens is they, you go through this course and then it becomes kind of a collateral duty that you do where uh, there's one rep at least at every unit. And when a new service member says, you know, Hey, I, I want to buy a car, but I don't understand the process. They can come talk to you and, and not be, I guess talking more to like a fiduciary role than a, you know, like a, the car salesman. <laughs> so. Got it. Got it. Okay. So we share something uh, in, in common. And, and, and one of the things I talk about on the podcast all the time is book club and, and how much we enjoy it. So 2015, as so, so many people have come on the show and told us you read rich dad, poor dad. Yep. <laughs> and that was the, the launching point for you. That was the catalyst. Yeah. I read that book. Uh, ironically, someone handed it to me while they were trying to get me into uh, Amway. And I read the book and was like, Amway is not what I want to do. Real estate is. Thanks, man. And that was kind of kind of all she wrote for me. Um, I did the what, the house hack, right? Bought a duplex, lived in one side, rented the other because I it, it was just good timing. I got handed the book about two months before my lease ended on an apartment. And I was running the numbers and was like, man, the, the mortgage on a duplex is almost the same as the payment on this apartment. Why don't I just do that? And 
so I just kind of jumped in. And then after the fact was, you know, once I moved out and it started paying me to own it, I was like, wow, this is really cool. I can do more of this and all very short window of time there. So, so for anybody who has not read the book, um, it's, it's an absolute must. I don't care what stage of investing you, you, you know, or what part of the pathway you're, you're down. Um, it, it, the book, it's just an absolute unbelievable reset in, in bring, bringing financial literacy to the masses, masses and reminding us of things that, the, you know, that book is filled with things that seem like common sense, but so few of us practice, right? Yeah. Um, you know, and guest after guest after guest comes on the show and talks about what an amazing impact it's had on their life. So you're in the military for, I guess, six, seven years at that point. You yep. read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Uh, and while you were in Hawaii, I believe you took down a, a 10 unit apartment uh, building in Missouri, correct? Correct. And this was, uh, I love this. This was bank financing, seller financing, a, a home equity line of credit. Uh, and you got into it for, for less than 6% down. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Could you talk, talk the audience through that deal and, and the structure and you know, how the heck that came together? Yeah. So first off, I wasn't even looking for things that size, right? I, at this point, I'd bought one duplex about a year and a half, two years prior. And I had bought a vacant like five acre lot that backed up to my primary residence so that we had 10 acres. Uh, and those were my only two transactions that I'd ever done. The wife, the, the primary residence, my wife had owned prior to us getting together. Um, and we'd just been kind of saving, saving, saving. But as a young service member, that's uh, you don't save a whole lot of money, right? You don't make a ton of money. You, we were living on base. So we were losing all of our housing allowance to base housing. Uh, and so I'd been saving up for like a year and a half, two years. And finally, I was like, okay, I think I have enough money for another duplex. I'm going to send out some mailers. And I hand wrote like 110 letters for uh, like on yellow, on yellow legal pads or whatever saying, you know, Hey, uh, I'm Dave. This is my wife. We're looking to buy some properties, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and one lesson learned there was that handwriting letters is, is a miserable experience. Like I, I pay for mailers now. I will never handwrite that many letters again. Uh, that was terrible, but I was trying to get a hold of these duplexes. So I sent out a bunch of letters and one guy called me back and was like, well, you know, I have a duplex. I don't want to sell it, but I have this 10 unit. And I was thinking of selling this 10 unit. I'm like, oh, well, tell me more. And it, he kind of, it, it just so happened that he got a hold of me as I was like going to be in town over Christmas break. So I was like, okay, well, I'll drive by the property. I got to look in like happenstance. I like knocked on a door and was like, hey, do you mind if I like just poke my head in and see what the apartment looks like? So I saw the inside of one unit that was, you know, inhabited and not like a clean tenant by any means. And then I saw the outside of the building and we kind of just made our offer off that. And uh, when we did the inspection, so we were under contract for 225 and this is in Missouri, this is in 2017. So prices have gone up a little bit since then. Uh, and this is like a class D crappy building. Um, and so I made the offer for 225, he accepted it. And then we went back and forth uh, after the inspection and I got about 12,500 knocked off the purchase price. And normally like now I would, I would prefer to do, you know, a, uh, they either fix it or they reimburse me at closing. So I have the cash to do it. But at the time, just taking it off the purchase price seemed fine to me because I didn't still pretty green behind the ears. Um, but what that did though, the nice thing, I guess that worked out in my favor is the bank didn't realize that we had dropped the purchase price. And so the check the bank showed up for was, I forget the exact number, but like 
I don't know, $10,000 more than what they needed to. Yep. And so what happened was I was going to pay 10% down and the seller was going to have 10% down or carry 10% and the bank was going to bring 80%. And the bank showed up with this bigger check. And so the seller still had his 10% down and the bank was basically like, well, you can either wait for us to go back and redo all the paperwork or you can just bring less money into close. I was like, we'll do less money into close. So I ended up bringing, it was like 5.8%. So I, I think I brought like 10,900 down on this $212,500 purchase and uh, the bank brought the rest and then the seller carried 10%. And that money that I had brought was a HELOC that we had pulled off the uh, my wife's primary residence. So kind of a weird hodgepodge of things, but Look, look, but that that's uh, on initial transactions for so many of us. That's what it's about, right? You know, who's pulling off credit cards, who's uh, tapping HELOCs, who's using, uh, you know, seller financing and terms wherever possible. So whatever it takes to get it done. So now you're in Hawaii, you have this asset in Missouri, 10 units. Um, any experience with management or, you know, who's who's running the building fee at this point? Yeah, I had hired a property manager when I bought the duplex when I moved out of state. And she hadn't screwed me yet. So I thought I'd give her a run. And, and luckily she's been really good. She, she still manages all my stuff. Uh, but that was my, my leap of faith then. I had no experience with apartments. Uh, I really didn't have a whole lot of people around me that had experience with apartments because my network wasn't anything like it is now. Uh, I asked a few of my friends who'd bought properties and I was like, do you see any major red flags? None of them saw any major red flags. So I went for it. Uh, even though none of them were really experienced enough to tell me there were red flags. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it was kind of a weird ride. So we bought it, probably put another 10 or 20,000 into like painting up the outside, touching up the outside with paint, new fascia, new siding, um, or new, not siding, uh, uh, gutters on the fascia. And then uh, cleaned up the parking lot a little bit, updated things to LED and, and whatnot. Uh, and then just kind of slowly tried to bump rent as we, you know, managed it. Um, and it's been four years now. I've refinanced twice on that. The first time I refinanced, I paid off the seller financing and then kept the same like short note and uh, mortgage payment. Sure. And then uh, the second time I refinanced was this last year when rates dropped and I cut a uh, percentage off the interest rate and pulled $66,000 out. And I had a 16 year note on it and I bumped it to a 25. And so my payment dropped 50 bucks a month. Um, so I've pulled out, I guess, $80,000 out of that deal now. And my payment's the same as the day I bought it. And, uh, yeah, I've used it to, I basically used it as a leap, a springboard to buy some other stuff. I'm actually listing it to try to see what it'll bring on the market this week. I'm thinking about selling it now and, and rolling it into something a little bit more, uh, you know, a little bit higher class property, just cause it is my, it's one of those things where the property's great. It cash flows. It's made me a lot of money. I, I love it. Uh, but it's also the one property where if you tell me like, hey, we got a problem with the tenant, I'm like, it's going to be that property, <laughs> you know? So I'm thinking, all right, maybe it's time to move into this little bit nicer class of property and and not deal with the, uh, you know, the the social security meth type tenant city board. <laughs> but so, so you've refinanced it twice, though. You've pulled 80 grand out of it. She's still cash flow. She still cash flows. Yeah, just because when I bought it, uh, I bought it on a 16-year note and it worked. And now it's out at, a I moved it to a 25-year note when I pulled all that cash out. So, so uh, you know, folks, he's pulled $80,000 tax-free, by the way, because he's refi cashing out on these deals. 
and uh, it's still cash flowing. I mean, not not bad for your first your first swing, David. I mean, it's I know it could nice be a lot start. worse, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, you do you have any other holdings uh, in in Missouri now, or is that the only one? Yeah, that's pretty much everything now. I just moved back to Missouri a few months ago, and I uh, got out of the military. I'm in the reserves now, and I guess I didn't get out of the military, but I'm off active duty now. Um, and I got uh, just over 100 doors here in Missouri. So we've got a 40-unit hotel, a 23-unit apartment, 15-unit apartment, that 10-unit, and then a couple, you know, anything from one to four unit sporadically spaced around town as well. So, so you've got a hotel. Uh, is it like traditional hospitality or is it short stay or what, what do you have? Yeah, no, it's a traditional hospitality, but it's not like anything super high end. It's a, it's a little like lodge. It has a pool and hot tub uh, and it's got 40 doors or 40, 40 units. Um, but it's not like, a, you know, I guess it's a, a, a two star hotel. So I think that's how they it's weird because when people hear two-star hotel, they think like reviews and that's not the case. It's two-star hotel, meaning like it is managed overnight. It does have a pool, hot tub and a bed and a, and a breakfast, but it doesn't have like restaurants or, or meeting places or whatever. Right. So it's just a typical small town, like think holiday Inn on like the side of a small town. Uh, and it's basically, uh, it's a guy that I had sent a letter to, to buy a single family house. And he was like, you know, I'll, I'll sell it, but I'm, I'm thinking I want to retire. Like, can you buy everything? And we were like, maybe what is everything and everything turned out to be the hotel a 15 unit apartment a 23 unit apartment of the single family house and this is at a town of like 3200 people so uh yeah the the power of of mailings and letters cannot be overstated how many listings and deals that we have sourced and guests have told us about that they have sourced <clears throat> simply by writing letters is remarkable so um, can you talk to us a little bit about that? That I'm, I'm fascinated that you jumped, <laughs> you jumped into hospitality. Can you talk a little bit more about that deal? Yeah. Uh, you know, when you hear the word hospitality, right, you think like it brings like pleasant thoughts to mind. Uh, but I think that's because most people are on the other side of hospitality. On this side of hospitality, uh, I don't know that any of us would jump back into a hotel again without a much, much, much better plan. So this was a hotel that had been like basically run into the ground. It went bankrupt like two years ago. This guy bought it and he was trying to transition it to uh, long-term care, right? Like uh, retirement home type stuff. And in this town, it's the only actual hotel. And it's the only actual hotel within like 20 miles. And the town was like, well, screw you. We need places for people to stay. So no. And uh, then he basically was like, well, I don't want to deal with this as a hotel then. So, you know, never mind. I don't want it. And so uh, he was getting ready to retire and move else, move his money elsewhere. Uh, basically, his son does short term rental stuff in a different market. So he was just going to move his money in with his son. Uh, so we decided to take over it. So it's, it hadn't at the time we bought it, 11 doors operational, poor management. The one guy who was awesome went with the seller when he left. So we, we lost him, which we didn't know about. Uh, so we, we have seven employees. Uh, we've probably hired and fired eight or nine since we took over in April to get those seven, uh, including, you know, moving managers around. And, and my, the, so one of the guys I partnered with on this owned a hotel or a motel technically in uh, about 45 minutes South. And we basically took his manager, <laughs> plucked him and moved him up here, gave him a room to stay in for free. Uh, so it's been a, it's been a headache. I mean, it's a whole different game. Right. And the weird thing with it is 
we bought it. We were in like the the summer months, which are much better, much more, much, you know, we didn't even realize that this was a seasonal hotel. So we put all this money into renovating everything and building a website because it didn't have a website and getting it on all the, all the booking spots. And, uh, and then, you know, we get everything ready and we're like, woo, slow season. Uh, so now we're, you know, we're, we're just kind of scraping by. And then once March hits, it'll pick back up, but it's been good. It'll, it'll be a, pr- a profitable deal. Uh, honestly, it'll probably cash flow more than anything else we own. It just takes a lot more effort. You can't just like set it and forget it. Right. There's all kinds of weird intricacies like, mm-hmm. Hey, you need to ask for reviews. And do we want to sell condoms in the gift shop? And, you know, it's like, it's a yeah. whole different beast. <laughs> it's a whole different ball game. It's a whole different uh, marketing endeavor. Um, the underwriting is completely different. The seasonality uh, is completely different. That's why I was curious. Um, but they they do have the they they can be wildly profitable at the same time. Yep. Um, is there a, a a draw? You know, like a significant draw for you in town that that farming. I mean, that's, I think that's the seasonality of it, right? So our main customers during the summer are uh, like farmhands and construction crews that come into town. Um, And then like right now it's basically just family members. So there's not like a massive draw so much as that within a 20, 25 minute drive, there's well, 20, 25 mile drive. There's not really anywhere else to stay. So we're like positioned halfway between Springfield, Missouri and Lake of the Ozarks. And then like pretty much there's a ton of places to stay. It's Lake of the Ozarks, a ton of places to stay at Springfield. But if you're in any of those small towns where you want to go kayaking or canoeing on the rivers or anything, like you kind of got to go to one of those two places or, or us. Uh, and so I think, I think we're uniquely positioned to just kind of take, I think we'll, we'll be able to be in a position where we're very busy consistently. We just need to get the word out that like, Hey, we, we took over this hotel and it's in new hands. Uh, so we're actually, once it gets to like February, March, we're going to do a, we're going to take people basically just hire some people for like $10 an hour, 15, whatever, and hand them a bunch of postcards that say like, Hey, we're new management. This is what we're all about. Yada, yada. And just slide them into people's doors because this place, when we took it over, we took it over. It was okay. But when, when it, when I went under two years ago, it was in rough enough shape that when we originally took it over, somebody called in at one point and asked if, uh, (laughs) if we would still trade a hit of crack for a two night stay (laughs) or two hit, two hits of crack for a one night stay, something (laughs) like that. Right. Like we were laughing because the the front desk was like, well, this really tells you what kind of people were operating this thing. Like, yeah, I wonder why they went under. There's uh, always some interesting things that shake out of these hospitality deals. You know, I, I had noted to you before we started, and I apologize to the audience. I've, I've got, I keep jumping off on mute, and you can see me peeling layers off here. I'm battling the flu, but uh, we're going to get through it. So you, you, you literally go from absolutely no experience whatsoever in this, this business. You read the book, and now you've written books, the, the No BS Guide to Military Life, uh, you've got a mastermind, the war room, real estate mastermind. Uh, you've got a course, real estate investing for beginners. There's consulting. Uh, you've got uh, a coaching course, I believe a six week coach, coaching course, and you've got a hell of a following. How did you make this leap? You know, what's been the inspiration for you? Really, none of that was started with the intent of it being any of that. What happened is about, oh, shoot, I guess almost four years ago now, three and a half years ago. Yeah, man, next month will be, yeah, almost four years ago. I'm going to have to get used to saying that. Uh, about four years ago, 
I was sitting down. So I had this idea for a book, nothing real estate related at all. Something about my deployment when I was in Afghanistan. Um, and I realized like, nobody knows who I am. Nobody's going to read my book. There's no way I'm going to be a published author. Like I failed an English class my senior year. I was like, I'm not a good writer. Nobody knows I exist. And I don't know anything about marketing. And so I was talking to a friend and he was like, well, why don't you just start a blog? Then you'll learn how to write. Maybe some people will follow it. And, you know, you'll learn how to, you'll learn some basics of like how to get people to find your blog. Like, okay, cool. And then the question was, well, what do I write about? Because if I'm going to write this book about like being the normal Marine in the desert, like I can't just write a million articles about like, so there I was eating an MRE, like, it's, you know, I'm never going to have enough content. And he was like, well, you do real estate. Why don't you just document what you're doing in real estate while you're doing it? You just write about what you're learning. And then now you've got content as you learn, it'll reinforce what you're learning. And it's like, you do it from the military angle. Maybe some people will follow along. I'm like, okay, cool. I didn't even come up with the website name. I put out like 10 different website names on Facebook to a bunch of friends. And one of my buddies who's not even in the military was like, those are all garbage. Why don't you do something like military millionaire? And, <laughs> and uh, we looked for a bunch of domains online that was taken. So we did the from military to millionaire. Cause I was like, I'm not a millionaire yet. Like, you know, I don't want to be an imposter. So we'll do it this way. So it's about my journey. Uh, and then Holy crap, it blew up. <laughs> I mean, that's really, really what happened is like a year and a half, two years down the road. It was like, okay, now there's people asking questions and wanting help. And I've, I'm now I'm writing articles to answer their questions instead of just whatever I want to write about. Now people are asking me if there's one place that they can go. And, and if so, like, you know, Hey, can I, I, I'm willing to pay you for it or, or whatever. And I'm like, well, I don't really want to charge people for any of this anyway. Uh, but what I, the, the reason for the course having a, a price tag on it is because uh, I did it. I did it free at first. Right. Uh, I did it for completely free and nobody finished it. And someone told me like, well, put, put like 150 bucks or they're like, that's affordable. Watch what happens. So I bumped it up to at the time, 97. Now it's like 147. I don't know. Um, and, and it's amazing because people finish it at a much higher rate at like $150 than they did at a hundred or at zero. Right. So when it was free, nobody finished it. It was a hundred. 40% of people finished it. And now I'm getting like 65, 70% of the people who buy the course finish it. Uh, and so it's like, man, I'd rather, I don't necessarily like charging money for a course when you can find some of the information online, but at the same time, like it just goes to show if you don't put a little bit of effort or skin in the game, like you're not actually going to pay attention to it. Um, and then the, the mastermind kind of just started with like a, well, Hey, what if we pull some of the more serious people together? Uh, and we just, kind of group them in to do like some accountability and and then it ultimately got to a point where I was like you know I don't think I'm the author right but if I don't write a book about everything I wish I'd known when I first joined the military like I'm doing everyone else a disservice because now everyone who goes before me or goes after me is going to go through all the same stupid mistakes I made when I have at least enough of a platform to reach some of them and say hey if you read you know <laughs> I guess I could pick it up I've got it sitting here like hey if you read this then like, you know, you can avoid at least the mistakes I made. I mean, there's tons of other mistakes out there that I haven't made yet, but <laughs> yeah. So outside of uh, the, the book that specifically obviously speaks to military life, uh, the, the following 45,000 on Instagram, 30 on uh, Facebook, 18,000 on YouTube, 31,000 TikTok. I mean, you've got a, a hell of a, a base here. Is, is the majority of your followers, are they military? It's kind of a hodgepodge, right? A lot of them, yes, military, uh, but a lot of them are also just real estate 
uh, because I, I talk all things military finance, but then I really focused in on real estate because that's where 80, 90% of my net worth is. And uh, so I've kind of just developed, I guess, both pockets of that with, with time. So you're, you're, you're kind of humming here on the secondary parts of what comes with the, the investing and, and you're doing all of the, the other things we talked about. Uh, where do you see the market heading? I'm, I'm curious to, to speak to uh, investors from around the country and, and get an idea of if, if they're seeing what I'm seeing and, and um, you know, where you think this ship is headed. So, so with that, David, what, what do you see in the next one, one to three years? Yeah, here's where I pull out my crystal ball. And if I'm, if I'm wrong, we all forget this ever got said. And if I'm right three years from now, I'm going to be on an infomercial saying the guy who predicted correctly. Um, <laughs> I, it's such a double-edged sword, right? Because there's two main things going through my head. One is, oh my goodness, this is so hot. And everybody's decided real estate is the answer. So fundamentally, now that the entire world knows about real estate, it's got to be at the peak. Like we've got to be at the top end of the market. It's too crazy. People know everything. Like everybody everywhere is talking about real estate. Like it's going to come down. It's got to happen, right? Like there's definitely that emotional side of the market. But then when I look at things analytically, it's like, well, inflation is historically pretty good for real estate values, right? They seem to hold okay. Inventory is ridiculously low everywhere, especially here. Like I'm listing a house on the market gone in two days in a market where normal, like, uh, so we listed a, a two one, not like your ideal, like big family home, right? Like just a little rental, two bedroom, one bath that could be a good starter home or a rental property. And we listed this thing at full market value and had a almost full price cash, no contingency offer within three days of going on the market. In a market where normal like days on market is like 45 to 80, right? Like this is not historically a super crazy buyer's market um, or seller's market. And uh, man, so, so it's like, I can't really argue with that. It's very hard to say, well, the market's doomed when the inventory, like that's the problem here is you can't find enough houses and that's, you know, that's supply and demand. That's like the biggest driver of, of any like economic cycle. Right. So, so that's kind of my, my camp right now is like, okay, well, interest rates need to go back up. Right. If interest rates don't go back up, I think the economy is eventually going to just, then that's going to be a reason that we, we see a crash here because the fed doesn't have any other levers to pull other than printing more money, which is bad. But uh, as far as like, boots on the ground. I feel like my market is extremely healthy right now. As far as market sentiment, I feel the same way. It's just the over looming, like emotional side of me. That's like, everybody else is thinking the same thing I am. So it's probably time to start, you know, so basically what I'm doing, right. To, to answer the, what people actually care about is I'm selling the underperforming assets. And that's kind of my, my hedge, right. So I'm selling the the 10 unit that makes good money does okay, but is a headache. And I'm selling the single family that barely cash flows and I have some equity in it. But I'm keeping all the things that cash flow well that aren't a headache, that are decent properties at decent locations. And I'm buying everything I can with long term fixed rate debt as long as I'm getting it for 60, 70 cents on the dollar off market for current value. So I'm still paying, you know, I'm paying today what I would have been paying three, four years ago on the MLS. So I know, okay, even if we do see a correction, it's not going to be that it's not going to hit me that hard and i'm making sure it cash flows well and as long as as long as i can get those two things 
you know, I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to, I don't know what the future holds, but I'm going to keep buying stuff as long as I can get a good discount. So if the, the market there is got tremendous absorption rates and, you know, as always supply and demand are the standard kind of key metrics for any market and sub yeah. where are you finding deals that are 60 to 70% discount to market? This is where I should hold up a letter, but they're all with my assistant right now getting, getting run through the system. Um, we, two, two main forms, right? One is uh, direct mail, right? So I use uh, ballpoint marketing is kind of my go-to as far as direct mail. They do the like handwritten, you know, machine written, but they look handwritten letters. Uh, had a lot of success with that. And then on the, uh, the other side, we just started yesterday with two cold callers that we hired. One is in uh, Egypt and one is in Albania and they're both, affordable and holy smoke so far today apparently one of them has gotten six leads which right if i can get six leads at five dollars an hour um okay let's go right that that'd be the cheapest marketing source i've ever had so i don't know we'll try not to get my hopes up about how good that could be but uh and we're just going to town with uh pulling lists of people who have pain points right they have a a lien on their property or the city said you have a code violation or whatever. Yeah. So um, the power ISAs and the VAs and the, all of this kind of next iteration in, of, of real estate outsourcing, we have had tremendous, tremendous success with them. Um, so I think that uh, what you're finding with your, your ISAs or your, your cold callers, you're going to find is, is the norm and you're, you're going to end up with uh, a, a, the, the situation that you're going to have to solve for is how do you manage all of these great leads, right? <laughs> so it, uh, we've had tremendous success with it. And it, it's crazy how in any market, regardless of the, the metrics, uh, there are always deals to be had if you just know where to look. You know, it's something that people, I think, lose sight of so quickly. They feel, oh, the, the market is hot already. I, I missed the boat on, on this one. Nah, man, there's deals out there. There's gold. Yep. You just got to know where, where to look. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. And that's exactly what it comes down to is it's, it's the mentality and it's just knowing, you know, what to, what to play with. Right. So direct mail has worked very well for us, but I also know that in this market, not a whole lot of people are doing texting or cold calling. So I'm going to kind of pivot into that as well, just because it's when I start hearing, Oh, I keep getting these letters and I think, all right, well, let me try something else and see what happens. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So as the market remains strong down by you, I'm, I'm curious, who's buying all of the housing stock? Are you guys seeing a big influx from, from like center city and from the big cities, people pushing out? Who, who's the base by you? Well, a lot of my buyers are still investors. Um, I, don't, I, I don't think we've seen a huge uptick from bigger cities so much as our base seems to be the the blue collar who couldn't get approved for a mortgage. And now that interest rates of, you know, are lower and, and they've gotten some stimulus or whatever, if they were smart, they've, they can afford a down payment and they can afford to get into housing right now uh, with the way the rates are. Um, we are, I, I take that. I think we're, I guess what I should say is that we aren't far enough into it to see that there's a trend as far as new buyers, but there's definitely been some growth from out of, out of city, out of state. It's just not like 
it's not big enough that you can just be like, oh yeah, there are people coming from New York, New York. It's more of a, we've had an influx in jobs here. And so they're coming from places, but it's not like any one spot. It's not, we're not a, we're not like Austin where the entire world is moving to Austin from, you know, San Diego, LA and uh, whatever Silicon Valley, but. So, so what influx of jobs, any specific segment? It's just kind of weird stuff, right? So we got an Amazon warehouse, we got a Costco, we've got some. Uh, Springfield has a decent amount of manufacturing, um, so like we've got a 3M plant, and uh, a Budweiser has a plant here, and uh, Bass Pro is headquartered here, O'Reilly's is headquartered here. But it, it's it's mainly more the like manufacturing side and like the warehouse side. That that'll do it, man. You know the the as the the big cities decentralize and and they no longer remain the epicenter for jobs. And a big reason for that is uh, the decentralization of everything, including uh, the, the warehousing and the manufacturing. We were screaming about this a couple of years ago, you know, get out of the, the overly regulated multifamilies up by us, at least, because legislative threats are top of every analysis now. Legislative yeah. threats are just brutal for us um, and shift to, to M-Zone. Uh, because the, and we feel that there still is a humongous amount of upside left in that market. Are you guys seeing any regulatory threats by you? No, not really. Uh, I mean, the one thing on like the Airbnb side, they're kind of, they're not strict. They just, they have some rules that don't really make sense here. And they're not driven by like hotels, like they are in a lot of big economies so much as driven by uh, like, some, as far as I can tell, some, some old neighbor was, was complaining to city hall loud enough that they were like, these are annoying. Let's just kind of limit them. Um, that's probably about it. I mean, really. So Springfield's fairly easy to deal with the little town where our hotel is. Uh, we're actually uh, waiting to hear back on an offer. If we get an offer approved, we're going to buy another 27 unit apartment in that town that actually shares a fence line with the one we currently own. Uh, if we buy that, we're going to own 106 doors in a town that has 3,200 people. So like 3% of the population will be our rentals. Um, cool. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting. And so we have, you know, in that market, it's like, as far as regulatory, it's like, well, we have the police chief's number, the mayor's number and the city development number. So it's kind of more of a like, you know, people call us and say, Hey, would you, you know, it's weird. It's total different dynamic, but in Springfield, they're pretty, they're still pretty, uh, pretty easy going. I mean, there's obviously there's rules, but they're, they're few and far between, right? We're a, an interesting state as far as, you know, like constitutional carry and, and pretty, pretty easy going on a lot of life, which is nice. Yeah. I, I think the, uh, another, another overlooked part of the transition here, or the decentralization, which again, we've been screaming about for a decade, the, we saw the first wave of the decentralization, right? We saw um, the coronavirus hit, people broke their habits, right? 60 some odd days to replace a habit, another 60 some odd days to put a new habit in. Uh, and people said, hey, we could do this, right? We're gonna, we're gonna trade in our nine to five and opt for a different life. That was people proactively that uh, for the most part, those were people that were uh, a little bit more financially set that had the flexibility to make those decisions and take a little bit of that risk. Um, I think what you're going to see next is the companies that have, have had enough, you know, and have kind of wised up 
and and have gotten to a point where uh, the the regulatory madness and and the the litigious society that we're in up here, um, you're going to find these big corporations start to push back from the table, right? The the numbers right now, believe it or not, uh, and so few people look at this side of it because it, it's scary. Eight percent, eight percent of workers office workers are back in five days a week in Manhattan, 8%, right? Yeah. Now, when, when the big companies are responding to some surveys and, and we're reading these surveys and they're saying things like, we haven't quite decided on, on when or what the future looks like and we'll revisit things in Q2 of next year, that's company speak for, we're not coming back. Right. And, and they're going to start to look for those elements that can be contested, like force majeure in their lease. And they're going to start breaking leases out and they're going to shrink and they're going to relocate. And they're going to be then pulling the workers with them. Right. So the first set was people could do it leaving. <laughs> I believe this next run <clears throat> is going to be the companies that are now saying, you know what, <clears throat> let's trade in that Fifth Avenue office, but it's 300,000 square feet that we pay a million dollar a year fine because we, we're not green compliant and we pay $5 million a year in taxes uh, on, let's go replace that with five offices that are 20,000 square feet. Let's get lean and mean in five of the emerging markets uh, across the country and decentralize at a fraction of what the cost base is today. Uh, so I think that those smaller towns and these secondary markets and even the tertiary markets, there is still a lot of upside because I think that, again, simple supply and demand that we talked about earlier, you're going to see those metrics start to, to flip and more and more and more people are going to start locating to these, these secondary markets. Oh yeah. And then if they can figure out the, they crack the code on the remote working thing, right? And they figure out like, oh, like I have a buddy, him and his wife are both high-end like accountants, CPAs for a company. Uh, and they were making, and I'm going to make all these numbers up because I don't remember. But let's say they were making $120,000 a year in, in San Diego, right? So they're bringing in $240 a year together. Um, they relocated to Florida about a year ago and their company was like, yeah, hey, we're totally cool with you guys relocating to Florida, but you're going to take a $15,000 a year pay cut, right? Because whatever. And cost of living. So the company saves $15,000 a year or 30 because they were paying both of them for them to move. But in Florida, where they moved to, that 105 goes a lot farther than the 120 did. And so they're still better off. So it's like, you know, if a company can figure out that piece, right, the geo arbitrage piece, now you got people who are working remote, like they have been for the last two years. It's just, I feel like it's it's just corporate trying to figure out like, A, how do we tell them like, you're not going to make as much money, but it's going to be a lot better for you. And B, because it will, as long as they move somewhere that makes sense. And B, like, it's almost like the, the, the Marine Corps side of things where it's like, we, we've let them work from home for so long, but we can't just, but, but, but what if we have to call them back into the office? We don't want to let them go everywhere just yet. And it's like, they just need to get past that fear. And once they cut that cord and let 80% of these people work remote and, and be successful and they can realize like, man, we can cut our expenses so much. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. Why would they be stupid to work from a $300,000 or 300 square foot? a thousand square foot, you know, place if they can work from like, you know, a 10 or 20,000 square foot place and have people all over the country and pay less for it. Yeah. Significantly less on the cost of real estate side. But then again, the regulatory 
the there it's just it, it's tough up here man it's tough to to keep things moving anymore there's just so many challenges much of the legislation much of the changes are well intended but um you know we've we've long since passed that point where uh, it's just become too heavy it's just become untenable and you're you're going to continue to see uh, this mass exodus, I believe, until things stabilize and, and they start shifting, because I don't think it's that big of a sell, David, to, to you know, uh, Joe or Susie, hey, we're going to we're going to knock your pay down, you know, by 20 percent. But you get to go live in Jacksonville and, you know, the cost of living is significantly better there and we're going to pay for you to move and you only have to be in the office twice a week. You know, I think the I think the population is ready for that. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Especially uh, like the younger population who wants to travel anyway. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Without a doubt. So do you have any straight commercial in your portfolio? Like retail? Uh, or? I had a little bit of retail for a little while. Uh, we did it as a lease option and we ended up ultimately not going through with it, but that was less because of it being the asset that it was and more just because of some things that had not, not been uh, pro forma accurately. So we got into it and realized this isn't exactly what we thought we were getting into. Uh, I wouldn't be opposed. I've been, there's a couple buildings in downtown in my market that I've been trying to buy for a long time. And it just, you know, sellers are not always as easy to work with as you'd like. So uh, been going back and forth. There's one gentleman I've probably been to his office six or seven times and we just haven't found a price point that works for both of us, but I would love to buy his building. So uh, trying to buy some more. And that that's like a, you know, commercial retail front with an upstairs loft. So I would basically use the loft as my office and then rent the bottom out to, uh, in this case, hopefully like an ice cream parlor that's coming in. <laughs> but yeah. Great. Well, listen, I really appreciate you taking the time today, Dave. What's the best way for people to find you? Uh, just Google military millionaire. We're, we're finally getting to a point where you'll be able to find all my platforms there. We're Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, TikTok. I mean, you name it, we're out there. I uh, really appreciate it. David Perret, everybody. David, thank you so much for the time. Everybody out there, as always, stay safe.